The COVID-19 Conversations podcast is brought to you by the African Alliance with support from the South African Medical Research Council, the South African Department of Science and Innovation, and the Vaccine Advocacy Resource Group, which is 100% funded by activists. Hello, dear listeners. This is Maaza Siyum from the African Alliance with an episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast focused on one of the most important overarching issues we face as advocates and scientists working to ensure successful rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. Our recent experiences working on other health issues have taught us that even the safest and most effective public health interventions are useless if communities are not willing to use them. Less than one year after the World Health Organization announced that COVID-19 was in fact a pandemic, researchers have developed several vaccines proven to be safe and effective at protecting against infection and severe disease. And just in the days since we recorded this interview, rollout of COVID-19 vaccines has begun in several African countries. But as governments grapple with issues of manufacturing, cost, and logistics, a shadow of vaccine hesitancy is looming large around the world, including across the African continent. One of our biggest challenges in the next year will be tackling the factors that lead to vaccine hesitancy. And these range from genuine concerns and questions to pure science denialism fueled in many cases by nefarious actors and social media. Many of us are, honestly speaking, still struggling with how to tackle this challenge with confidence. For this reason, I am so happy that our guest for this episode is a philosopher who has for many years wrestled with issues of science denialism. Dr. Lee McIntyre is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. He's also an instructor in ethics at the Harvard Extension School and the author of many books. Dr. McIntyre appeared on our radar at the Alliance after a South African researcher recommended his 2018 book titled Post-Truth, in which he breaks down how global society has gotten to this place where conspiracy theories thrive and alternative facts are sometimes even more convincing than proven data. When I reached out to Dr. McIntyre to find out if any of his work touched on vaccine hesitancy, he told me that he had recently finished writing a book on how to talk to science deniers. I was, of course, thrilled and proceeded to ask him if he would join me for a chat on this podcast. He graciously agreed. And in this conversation, Lee breaks down what his research and that of others has uncovered about science denialism. He walks us through what has been successful in challenging this issue around the world, and we discuss how those tactics can be applied to the African context. We talk about Dr. McIntyre's experience at a recent Flat Earth convention, where he conducted in-person testing of his methods with some very determined conspiracy theorists and thought about how his findings could be applied elsewhere. We break down the difference between vaccine-hesitant people and anti-vaxxers, and we remind ourselves that in all cases, most of our beliefs are closely tied to our identity and our emotions. I'm really grateful to Dr. Lee McIntyre for joining us for this wide-ranging discussion, and I hope that it gives us all some confidence and highlights the fact that each of us has a role to play in this important fight for truth. Um, Dr. McIntyre, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. Could you already tell us why you decided to write a book focusing on science denialism when there are in theory, you know, in thinking about post-truth, so many other areas to focus on? Just before this, my my most recent book was called The Scientific Attitude, and there I developed uh, what I think is a theory of what's so special about science. 
because I think that you really need to understand what's special about science in order to be able to defend it. And it ends up being a pretty good way of distinguishing between science and pseudoscience and allows you to push back against fraud and denialism and things like that. Um, so that book, although it was pitched toward the general public, was a little bit more academic, uh, a little bit more theory. And I thought, you know, when I was out talking, uh, out doing speeches for that book, uh, talks, I thought, I kept getting questions about, well, you know, how do we put this in practice? And I started to think, well, I need to do that. Why don't I do that? And so I started to go out and seek out science deniers, to meet with them, to talk with them, to go where they were. And then I wrote a book about that, uh, those encounters, trying to um, use some of the things that I had developed on a theoretical basis and see if they worked in practice. And so the book is uh, How to Talk to a Science Denier. And it's also aimed at a general audience. And it, it really is, it's a sort of a follow-up to the earlier book. You don't have to have read the earlier book to, to make sense of it. And as far as post-truth goes, I, I think that science denial is the root of post-truth. Okay. And just, you know, I'd like to ground our listeners. Um, we have listeners in South Africa, but also in the rest of the continent and elsewhere, you know, just to ground them on why we thought it was so important to talk to you right now. Um, South Africa is the sub-Saharan African country hardest hit by COVID-19. And the toll of the pandemic has been devastating despite the fact that the country implemented one of the strictest lockdowns in the world very early in the pandemic. And at the moment, although it's summer in the Southern hemisphere and one would have hoped that the, the, the heaviness of the pandemic would lift in warmer weather, the country's experiencing a deadly second wave um, and also the emergence of a, of a more infectious local, infectious local variant of, of the coronavirus. Um, so there are many questions at the moment in the international press about access to vaccines and how quickly African countries will get them. But even with all those discussions, you know, at the moment, the government is really trying to prepare for the huge effort that it will take to roll out COVID-19 vaccines nationally. And as these plans are being crafted, there is a sense, um, at least in the national social media and traditional media landscapes, that we are experiencing along with the wave of, of COVID-19, a wave of a vaccine hesitancy. And we don't have that much data um, at a local level, unfortunately, no research that we've been able to find that clearly lists you know, what the level of vaccine hesitancy is you know, versus anti-vax sentiment. But what we do know um, from a survey conducted by the World Economic Forum last year in October is that 65% of South Africans said they would accept a hypothetical COVID-19 vaccine. So that was before the vaccines had been approved and started being rolled out. And when the World Economic Forum commissioned a survey a second time in December, um, that had actually fallen. So fewer South Africans said that they would be willing to, to access a vaccine. Um, so, that is really the main issue that you know, the government leaders and the public health advisors are sort of grappling with is how to address this issue of vaccine hesitancy. And I know that your research has given you a sense of what has worked in other countries. You know, there are many questions about whether or not to confront vaccine deniers, to confront science deniers, or whether that would backfire and sort of encourage other people to fall into those beliefs. So on a very basic level, I mean, what would you say to us about whether your findings from other countries can be applied to South Africa and whether there are some key themes that you would present to us about what would work as we are challenged with vaccine hesitancy and anti-vax sentiment? Yeah. The good news is that all science denial is the same. If you know how to talk to a flat earther and an anti-vaxxer, then you also know how to talk to a climate denier or a COVID denier. It's, they all use the same script. Uh, a few years back, there were some researchers, uh, um, the Hoofnagel brothers. They came up with a, uh, a rendering of what that script was. It has, there are really five tropes of science denial. First is cherry picking evidence. Second is reliance on conspiracy theories. Third is engaging in illogical reasoning. 
Fourth is reliance on fake experts and denigration of real experts. And fifth is the insistence that science has to be perfect. Basically the idea that if there's any flaw in science, then you know, it's, it's suspect and you know, other hypotheses can come in. And what I did in my most recent book is I took that idea seriously that all science denial was the same uh, because uh, although I didn't, uh, I didn't go to vaccine conventions, I didn't speak with uh, anti-vaxxers one-on-one, uh, -on -one. I did speak with climate deniers and I did speak with flat earthers. And the, what I came away with was the idea that the, uh, the strategy would work, um, theoretically uh, should work with all science deniers. Now, I have to say, this was not my strategy. The script was from the Hoofnagel brothers and the actual, um, some of the empirical work on this was uh, done by some uh, researchers in uh, Germany, uh, Cornelia Betsch and Philip Schmid, who had a paper in Nature Human Behavior in uh, the summer of 2019. And they provided the first actual empirical evidence to show that you could push back against science deniers, any type of science deniers. And there was no backfire effect. And what they discovered is that you could push back by either what they called a content rebuttal or technique rebuttal. Technique rebuttal was the part that the layperson can do. Uh, it's the taking those five tropes that I just talked about and trying to help people to realize, you know, don't you see that you're engaging in a conspiracy theory or, you know, what you just said was illogical, et cetera. You know, demonstrate that to them. Content rebuttal is when you know something about the specific uh, content of the area. Say if you're expert in climate science, then you'd have more credibility uh, talking about that to a, a climate denier. But the really interesting thing that Betch and Schmid found was that um, it is worth it to push back against a science denier. That if you think, oh no, I'm just gonna make it worse um, by talking to them, you wouldn't. And in fact, what makes it worse is to let the disinformation go unchallenged. Now, here, here's something that I hope to bring to the equation. Um, I wanted to do this face to face because in my view, science denial is at least in part about identity. Uh, it's in part about which team you're on and trust. And you're not gonna convince somebody with facts. Um, they might listen to facts once they trust you, but if they don't trust you, then the doubts are just gonna overwhelm it. They're not gonna listen to anything. So I started to read these anecdotal accounts um, from about anti-vaxxers who had changed their mind. And they were all exactly the same. They all changed their mind because someone that they trusted uh, took the time to be calm, to be respectful, to listen to them and answer their questions. So it's not just the facts that change the mind, it's the context within which the facts are presented. And to me, that was a, a really a, a revolution, uh, what I read about in these other folks' work. And then I, that led me to wanna to go out on the road and give it a try myself. Hmm. Okay, I know that some of our listeners, especially when I think about the advocates or the scientists who feel very frustrated about whether they are going about this the right way, will be very curious about what you've just said, because as I've mentioned, this is a challenge that, that we've had, you know, trying to decide whether or not we are fueling the fire by responding to, you know, especially anti-vaxxers online, but also, you know, the vaccine hesitant. So, so what I'm understanding is that it is worth engaging with people, um, that the mm -hmm. first step is trying to develop a sense of trust and trying to understand what the identity that they're associating with is in their either vaccine denial or science denialism, but also trying to identify where we would sort of be best in terms of chatting with them. So I hear, you know, the first part is the tropes of science denialism. And you mentioned the cherry picking of evidence, belief in conspiracy theories, reliance on flawed experts of which, and I'd like to talk a little bit about, mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. that with you in terms of the people who are very powerful on, on social media 
and um, the insistence that science must be perfect, which I hope we can get into because that's something that as, as advocates, we really try and encourage scientists to accept that it's not perfect and that they should not be shy about admitting that it's not perfect. And then the illogical reasoning. So there's the, the tropes, but then there's also the content. So should as, let's say if it's me and I'm an advocate, should I decide, would I be best placed to try and address the tropes or the content, kind of pick which one of those I can address and first try and gain the trust of the individual before I go on, go on to step two? It, it's an interesting question and it's been settled empirically because in the Betch and Smid uh, study, they found that there was no difference in the effectiveness of content rebuttal versus technique rebuttal. They were both uh, equally effective in mitigating uh, the, the problem of science denial. It couldn't be overturned, but it could be mitigated. Now, that's of course going to frustrate scientists because you know, they put all that work in and they're no more persuasive maybe than uh, a member of the public who's learned about the five tropes. But it's terrific news for the rest of us because it means that you don't have to have a PhD in physics or a PhD in chemistry to go out there and uh, you know, talk to science deniers. Now, I part of my mission uh, after uh, writing this book is to get more scientists to believe that they have a role, that part of their role is not just to do science, but to um, put public information out there in a way that the public will trust them. Um, and that means face-to-face. -face. Uh, it does not the worst possible place to convert somebody is online or in the comment section of an, an article. It's just um, it, people just pick up their sides and they flame. And it's, it's very different when you're there in person. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story here. Um, in the November of 2018, I went to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver, Colorado, here in the U.S., because I considered the flat earthers to be the worst possible science deniers, the ones that even other science deniers wouldn't want to be associated with. And I thought that if I could talk to them, I would learn things that would work against climate deniers, anti-vaxxers, et cetera. And what I found was in my conversations that it was all exactly, they were all exactly alike. That is to say, just to use the example, conspiracy theories. Flat Earth is based on an enormous conspiracy theory, just as anti-vax uh, tends to be, just as climate change uh, denial tends to be, or COVID denial. And so once you know that, you really have leverage. And it's, it's simply a matter of, um, you know, you, you don't go in hot. You don't go in um, insulting the other person, you know, assuming that they're letting them know that you think that they're wrong. You just want to have a conversation with them. Um, eye contact, shaking their hand. I took one fella out to dinner. Um, those are the sorts of conversations where you build trust. And once you've built trust with someone, then the facts can come in. Mm -hmm. That is something that I wonder if our, our public health people and the scientists would say, okay, Lee and Maza, this is all well and good, but how do we do this quickly? You know, we have um, vaccine rollout happening, um, hopefully in the first half of the year. And obviously this is a medium to long-term project. You know, not everybody who is vaccine hesitant will be convinced within the first six months of the year. But if we are not able to do a one-on-one -on -one sit down with, with everybody that we would like to reach, are there, messages or ways that we can counter, especially on social media. And I don't know if that's something that you had the opportunity mm -hmm. to, to address in your book. I would also very much like to hear about the dinner that you, that you took the flat <laughs> earther out, out to. But um, you, know, you mentioned these idea of the, you know, these leaders you know, as part of the, the five tropes. You know, um, something that we've also struggled with is when we see conversations online, do we try and confront the people who are sort of the the, the leaders of these anti-vax movements, because my sense is, and maybe you could also clarify this for us, is that there are people who are vaccine hesitant and there are people who are truly anti-vaxxers. And that maybe yes. we will have much of a chance to convince the anti-vaxxers, but the vaccine hesitant people 
um, we can maybe reach, you know, but they are being convinced by flawed experts, you know, on, yeah. on social media. So I guess those are two questions, you know, one, if we are not able to reach everybody one-on-one, -on -one, is there something that you have found that works in sort of um, more of a, a mass media or a national level campaign? Um, and number two, you know, if there is an opportunity to challenge one of these um, flawed experts who does have a large following, um, you know, for example, um, you know, there have been uh, conversations about whether to invite them to radio shows or to, to TV shows and to try and challenge them on air. And the concern there has been that it is it does become a false equivalency. You know, you'll have a scientist yeah. and then you'll have the flawed expert. And is that sort of raising their profile in a way that um, would be counterproductive? I think it's definitely counterproductive. Uh, you never want to give a platform to somebody who is spreading disinformation. That's, uh, and again, in the Betz and Schmidt study, they, they talked about this. So that's maybe the worst possible thing that you can do. I don't know if there's a top-down solution for this. I wish there were. I mean, I wish there were some, um, you know, blanket way to, to do this, but the, the, I'm really working at the grassroots level and I'm not really sure at this point, uh, you know, what else might work than that, except to say that there are an awful lot of people out there who believe in science, but okay. have just been reluctant to get in and go to the, where the science deniers are and engage with them because maybe they feel it's beneath them mm -hmm. or they think that, you know, these people aren't worth talking to. Well, but that's empirically testable, right? Because it's been proven they are worth talking to. Now, mm -hmm. I have to say who's worth talking to because that was part of your question. With science denial, it's very important to remember that um, it's based on intentionally false information. Most science denial campaigns are not based on a mistake, on misinformation. It's disinformation, which is to say that it's information that was intentionally created by someone for their own benefit, sometimes a financial benefit, sometimes a political benefit. And then it filters its way out to the masses, to the audience. And the public really doesn't understand science that well, uh, I believe, so that when it looks like, well, but scientists don't know, uh, well, maybe this other theory is correct. Uh, you know, this goes to that idea of the fifth trope about science having to be perfect. I think that most people think that science does have to be perfect, that it has to have proof, that it has to uh, work in certainty. That's not how science works. And I, the one mistake that scientists make when they engage with science deniers is to say, oh, well, this has been proven. Mm -hmm. or, you know, we're certain about this. Because the minute you say that, and then the story changes, you've lost trust. They'll, you know, they'll never trust you again. Look what happened in the United States when uh, Dr. Fauci originally said that masks were not necessary mm -hmm. and then changed later. Now, science learns things and it, you know, it, what we know changes over time. I think it, one thing that I really enjoy about scientists is that they'll say, we don't know that, or we have 95% confidence in this, or, you know, subject to further analysis, we think that. Uh, that's really how it should be done. There's no better alternative uh, than, you know, that way of knowing things, but it doesn't require proof or certainty, or let me just put it this way, you can't get proof or certainty. If we could get that message across, you know, in our public schools, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a blanket solution. Stop mm -hmm stop teaching science as science appreciation and start teaching kids how to think like scientists, which means making mistakes, you know, screwing up, uh, learning things by accident, um, you know, thinking like a scientist does. Yes. And that's something that, um, you know, in terms of the scientists and admitting that things are not perfect, I wonder if um, one, you know, this is something that I think we can really push with scientists in, in terms of trying to change the way they communicate, you know, and I think they were, there is a worry that um, sometimes people feel that if we say that we don't know, we will not be trusted down the line. And I think what you're saying is it's better to be as honest as possible 
as often as possible and explain to people that this is the way science works and we're learning as we go along. And I think, you know, both in the US and in South Africa, there's the added issue of maybe scientists not being fully trusted all the time. You know, um, there are not that many black people doing whether it's HIV vaccine research or COVID-19 research. So you have that added sense that already we are from a different community from you. And can we trust what you're saying to us? You know, and I think that South Africa has done a very good job with HIV vaccine research, you know, having shifted or HIV prevention research more broadly, having shifted, you know, from an era, an earlier era of science denialism before ARVs were rolled out um, under President Thabo Mbeki, and then coming to a place where there were years of, of excellent HIV prevention research and a huge community engagement network that really tried to make sure that the communities um, understood science and the scientific process. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, that scientists feel that here with this new disease that, that the country is grappling with, that, that they will be able to get back to some of those, those community engagement roots mm -hmm. and not feel like they, they have to, to, to say that they know what they're doing all the time. It's a, it's a killer to think that everybody should listen to you because you know the answer or because you're an expert. Because that ignores the fact that a, a lot of people don't trust experts or they, you know, for, for whatever reason, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. And I think to go in with a certain amount of humility, um, not, not assuming that the other person is, is stupid, if they're a science denier, say, but maybe that they've been misinformed or that, you know, they, they're not, you know, for whatever reason, they've, they've ended up uh, what they call here in the U.S. Uh, going down the rabbit hole of a conspiracy theory. Um, it, it can happen to very intelligent people. And it, and it requires, I mean, I get it. It requires a certain amount of restraint not to tell somebody, you know, what do you mean you think the earth is flat? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Are you insane? I mean, I wanted to have those words come out of my mouth many times over the two days I was at the Flat Earth Convention, but I didn't do it because if I really wanted to try to convince someone, it was important for me to hold my own ego in check, uh, not just expect them to listen to me because I had a, a PhD. And in fact, I didn't talk about the evidence um, for flatter or for the global earth with them. I talked about their reasoning strategy. Um, you know, I found some way to engage them that was not going to be confrontational. And the reason I did that was because I recognized that science denial begins with doubt. And I mean, doubt can be a good thing. Science also begins with doubt, by the way. Right. But how does it happen that doubt taken too far uh, or in the wrong way can become denial? And I think this is where we've really got a chance because if, if a science denier is somebody who is a person who doubts things, and they maybe have a little bit of an experimental attitude where they want to see for themselves, they want to do their own research. Those are both good things. That means that they're open to learning. But now we have to ask ourselves, wh where are they learning? Uh, if they're online watching YouTube videos from you know, some of these disinformation folks who have a vested in uh, interest in getting them to believe a conspiracy theory, then we're in trouble. So you know, I, I think that scientists, um, scientists need to fight the war that we're actually in. And the war that we're actually in is not one where you can discover the truth and, you know, people will believe it. It's one where you have to do a certain amount of advocacy. And the scientists that I know are passionate about defending science. What if they went to science denial conventions and, and met with people? Um, the, one of the examples, one of the anecdotal examples, so, so a story I read in the Washington Post, it was called, um, uh, I used to be an anti-vaxxer, here's how I changed my mind. She talked about, it's a woman in South Carolina, and she talked about how the, now I may be getting this mixed up with a different story, but uh, of anti-vax who changed her mind. But the point was 
the person took the time, the scientist took the time to explain cell division, to explain how it worked, to take all the questions, to, to say, no, that's not a silly question. Here's why you might think that, went over it and over it. Two hours spent answering questions, at the end of which she decided to vaccinate her children. Now, that solution is not scalable, as they say, right? Okay. I mean, scientists are busy in the lab. They just don't have the time to go out and do that. But there are an awful lot of them. And the problem is that up until now, the deniers have had the microphone. You know, we, we don't want to debate them up on stage because that, you know, gives them a platform. But one, one thing that's frustrated me is the number of folks that I know who are scientists who say, it's not worth talking to those people, or, you know, how do you do it? How, how could you possibly go to a Flat Earth convention and spend two days without tearing your hair out? Well, uh, I, parts of it, I was upset, but I was alone when I was upset, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. show that in public because the problem was too serious. And I think that if this is a problem for all of us. We have to take it seriously. Yes, and I think already in this conversation, you have addressed one of our, our primary concerns, you know, that question of, as you said, you know, scientists will some, sometimes say, is it worth it, you know, to respond? And I think we've established that, yes, it is worth it, um, not worth it to engage with prominent anti-vaxxers in public forums, because that does give them a platform, but yes. trying to find a way to engage with people who are maybe not quite on the anti-vax extreme, or maybe you would disagree, you know, tell me, you know, as I said, we, we do get a sense that there are people who are anti-vaxxers and others who are vaccine hesitant and are maybe being swayed by some of the information that they're getting from these social media you know, influencers, um, but you're suggesting that it would be worth at least as much as possible on a one-on-one -on -one level. And, you know, this is another, another point that I, that I think our, our colleagues would, would love to get your feedback on. You know, we probably mm -hmm. do not have the bandwidth to have, you know, one of the, the scientists spend two hours with, with everybody right. who needs convincing. Right. But one idea that has been floated is maybe training um, kind of lay educators. So around the country, training people in either, you know, the, the tropes, you know, that you mentioned, you know, yep. we were thinking maybe kind of communication skills yep. and then also, you know, the content and then finding ways either through, you know, local WhatsApp groups. WhatsApp is very popular in South Africa still, you know, at community level or through, you know, community events, COVID-19 allowing, of course, you know, this is also something that makes it a little bit harder as people can't really gather in rooms at the moment, but, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. there will be um, a transition soon, but trying to find, to train a core group of people who are influencers on the, the pro-science side and having them then do the face-to-face -face, if possible, one-on-one -on -one if possible, or small group if possible outreach. Is that a way that we could maybe do the, the scaling up that wouldn't you know, require a PhD for, for every interaction? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the five tropes strategy, the technique rebuttal strategy, you know, any, any intelligent person can learn the five tropes and, uh, you know, and learn how to, uh, to implement it. There are really two ways of doing it too. In, in the study, they talked about debunking, you know, they would present somebody with false information and then immediately debunk it, say, well, don't you see that they were using a conspiracy theory there? And then they would explain why it was wrong. But there's also pre-bunking, right? If you, you can go out in advance and uh, make sure that people understand now, you know, this person's going to present you with a conspiracy. So, you know, listen very carefully to whether or not they have any evidence for it. That, that actually works quite well uh, as well. So, so yes, I like that idea very much of having influencers, because if you think about it, the number of people creating science uh, disinformation, maybe is not that great, but look at the influence that they have. So what if we had, uh, you know, forces on the other side whose whose job was to uh, target, um, you know, things like this? So you, you, you maybe maybe there could maybe I'm underestimating it. Maybe there could be something that we could do online. Maybe there just need to be more and more YouTube videos with um, accurate information as opposed to uh, bad information. I mean, one problem with YouTube is you watch a flat earth video and then the next thing that comes up is another flat earth video and another one and another one. And you know, there you have to 
look at that point you have to look to find anything on the the debunking side you know once people start to to get sucked into it so I like the idea of influencers. Um, I think that's a wonderful idea, you know, that the people who care about science um, shouldn't just be talking to one another. Um, they should be talking to people who disagree with them. And, and, and I, I know how uncomfortable that is. I mean, because I've done it. Um, it's, it's not a pleasant thing. And, you know, one of the most fascinating things when I was doing it is to realize that they think the same thing of me that I think of them. When I think that they're gullible, they think I'm gullible. When, you know, when I think that they're reasoning illogically, they think that I'm reasoning illogically. And it opens up a kind of, kind of an interesting opportunity to have these conversations. I sat in one of the seminars that I sat in on at the Flat Earth International Conference was how to convince people that the earth is flat. So, and the strategies that they used were the same strategies that I was trying to use to get them out of it. I and mean, you it could was, see listening how people had been convinced online or elsewhere, you could see how people would listen to that and if they were already yes. sort of hesitant, be convinced. Yes, now, now I, I have to also say this though, I did not succeed uh, in the following sense of all the people that I spoke with at the Flat Earth Convention, you know, nobody tore off their lanyard and, you know, left the, the convention with me and, you know, I'm on the other side now. That just didn't happen. Now, even after maybe, the dinner, Lee, I was hoping even you would after tell the me dinner. that really, okay. Well what, well, what I did, see, I was going for the high influencers. So the guy that I invited to dinner was one of their guest speakers. And I nabbed him the second he came off stage. So that's a very difficult target, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so I, and, and another fellow that I uh, pulled off stage, we got into a, a quite a discussion with about, you know, 10 or 20 people around listening to us, just, you know, in the ballroom after uh, his presentation. So I was going after the relatively big fish on the theory that, you know, I wanted to see if I could convince one of them, but also, we did have an audience. We did have people who were listening mm. to us. Mm -hmm. um, so it was it was difficult for me. I, I, I left feeling like I understood science denial better, but I wish I had been able to convince someone, one of the flat earthers. Then again, I think, you know, there were 650 of them and one of me. And one thing that we know about science denial is that it's a function of identity. And once somebody goes to a convention, uh, they're, they're radicalized, they're pulled in, they, you know, that's their team. Mm -hmm. And when you attack their beliefs, you're attacking them. So it was maybe an unrealistic thing that, you know, I would go and, you know, present them with the truth and, and they would agree with me and leave. But um, there are people uh, perhaps more persuasive than me who have used these techniques to convert anti-vaxxers, uh, to convert, um, you know, uh, other folks from uh, from radical beliefs as well. I I was just in a um, doing a radio show the other day with an expert on cults, uh, who said that some of the techniques that I was describing were used for deprogramming people out of cults. Hmm. Fascinating. And you know, when you talk about cults. Um you know, and identity, something that, you know, comes to mind. And I know that you have, you have said a few times, you know, that in doing this work, we need to show empathy and also not have um, what we might see to be the ridiculousness of an argument sort of, you know, bubble to, to the forefront, but something that has been coming up online repeatedly recently in South Africa and probably in the rest of the continent as well, is that um, COVID-19 vaccines could potentially be a way to transmit, you know, the mark of the devil. So there's been quite mm -hmm. a bit um, um, about that, but it does, you know, I, I did make me wonder, and I have to say that I I spent quite a bit of time online trying to find out what the link was between the devil and the vaccine. And I, I still, you know, right before I spoke to you, you know, before we got on the call, I even sent a message out to my colleagues and I said, can one of you explain to me what this is about? Because I don't yeah. understand it. So You'll I, never I, find it. 
Exactly. You'll, you'll, it's you'll never find it because it's not a it's not a logical connection. Uh, it's an emotional connection, um, and you know this happens in science denial all the time. It it doesn't it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't it has to feel true. It doesn't have to be true, and they don't even they don't even have to be able to uh, to explain it. Um, now that is, however, something that you can use. Uh, with technique rebuttal to, uh, you know, simply to listen, to ask them to explain it. Mm. If so, if you were to talk to somebody who had this belief about the vaccine, um, don't let them get away with just saying, well, you know, I heard that the vaccine was a mechanism by which, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ask them to explain it. Ask them to, you know, tell you why they believe it and how that could possibly be. I mean, um, one thing that I've heard here in the in the U.S., some of the uh, folks who are refusing the uh, COVID vaccine is because they think that it is uh, invented or advocated at least by uh, Bill Gates, who wants to inject um, uh, some sort of a tracking uh, uh, mechanism through the, the injection. Now, yes, why yes, yes. would in they South do Africa that? As well. yes, why would he do very... that? Mm. What, what, what's the so so one thing to, to always ask is what's the evidence, and there won't be any. Now, for a conspiracy theorist, that's not a problem because when there's no evidence, that just shows you how great the conspirators are at covering their tracks. But you know, at a certain but see, that's toxic doubt. That's not the kind of doubt that a scientist has. That's toxic doubt. But I think there is a way, you know, through respectful, careful conversation to try to get somebody to realize that some of their doubts are unfounded. I mean, the, you cannot convince them, but you can create an environment in which maybe they can convince themselves. Mm, and that mm. starts with getting them to doubt their own basis for believing the things that they've heard. Most people believe things on the basis of what they I've heard from other people. And, you know, if you can really just in a, in a gentle, careful way say, well, why do you believe that? Well, now why would that be the case? You know, tell me, tell me more. Where, where did you hear this? Was that a reliable source? You know, uh, where could I read more about that? You know, they, they will, they, they end up sometimes contradicting themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and tell Tell me more about the toxic doubt, Lee. So is that sort of when people are very entrenched in their doubt and there's nothing that you can do to convince them otherwise? It is. And, and that was the most success that I had at the Flat Earth Convention was this. So when I was engaging in these conversations at Flat Earth, I would say, what evidence, if I had it, would convince you that you were wrong? And then I kept my mouth shut and they could not answer that question. And it made them very uncomfortable that they couldn't answer that question because to them, it was all about evidence. And I was saying, I wasn't presenting them with evidence, you know, well, look at these photos from NASA. They'll say, oh, those photos were faked. We know, well, what about this? Oh, you know, no, that's, you know, not correct. Any evidence that I presented to them, they would, they had a, an answer to it because somebody had taught them what to say. But when I made it a speculative, open-ended, well, what evidence would it take to show you that you were wrong? They had never thought about that. Mm -hmm. But every scientist has thought about that. Every scientist knows precisely what evidence would blow up their theory. But science deniers do not. And that's when doubt is toxic, when the doubt is just free-floating, when the doubt is not tethered to evidence because doubt should be relieved by evidence. Uh, I mean, maybe we start with, scientists start with doubt, but then when evidence comes in, then maybe the doubt never completely goes away, but it builds up something that philosophers of science call warrant. There's more warrant for the belief, the more evidence you have. And so one thing that I've thought is, you know, behind a lot of science denial is simply that people don't know how to think about doubt. They don't, they don't know how to assess what it means to be in a situation where you don't have a certain answer and what you should believe on the basis of the evidence that you have. As a philosopher, I'm fascinated with this question. And that's what I, you know, I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert on 
the climate or vaccines or anything like that. But I do like to talk to people about how they reason and what their evidence is and have, uh, I think, had some success with that. Mm -hmm. And something you bring up here, you know, you say doubt in theory should be relieved by evidence. And that takes me back to the, the question of the very entrenched people versus the just hesitant people. And um, I'm wondering if this is something that you have seen, you know, yeah. in climate denial or, you know, at the, at the Flat Earth Convention. I, I suppose once they get to the convention, they're, they're already quite entrenched. But right. do you think that we should try and come up with a mechanism to differentiate if possible, which is difficult to do on, on social media, but to differentiate between people who are very entrenched and for whom no evidence will relieve doubt yeah. and the ones who are simply hesitant and maybe could listen if they were approached in an empathetic manner and allowed to kind of work through some of their questions. It's a really important question because science denial exists on a spectrum. And you're wasting your time to try to convince somebody who is uh, deeply entrenched. Sometimes that's because they already know that they're wrong, but they're profiting from it. You know, you're, you're never going to get them to admit it because, you know, they'll lose something. But sometimes it's because they've just been bathing disinformation for 10 years and they're, they're, it's part of their identity and they're just not going to give it up. I'd say the better thing, um, and the, uh, some of the work I've seen on climate denial has tried this to some success, is to work on folks who are um, you know, the equivalent of the folks that you say who are hesitant, the people who have heard some things, but they haven't quite made up their mind yet. You know, they're, they're not quite sure. That's where maybe we can do the most good. And that's, by the way, the largest group, okay? The, the, the hardest core, the hardest hardcore deniers, maybe there are very few of them, but they're very loud. <laughs> they have a big megaphone in social media and they're very confident and they spread their disinformation out to a lot of people. I like the vocabulary that you use uh, when you talk about people who are vaccine hesitant, because I don't think that that's actually in this case, just a euphemism, you know, that they're really deniers, but we, you know, we don't want to insult them. I think that in some cases they are just hesitant. And one important thing is to think about why are they hesitant? Uh, I think that you have to listen to what their concerns are, address them, you know, with empathy and respect, and then you've got a, you've got a chance. So, you're right, that's, that's where the focus should be. And, and for the scientists as well, I think that um, you will exhaust yourself trying to convince a hardcore denier. It's just, um, at a certain point, there are people for whom it's a waste of time to talk to them, but there are others that it's not. And it's, you know, it's worth thinking about how to identify the folks who are still persuadable. Uh, one effective technique might be to use an exemplar, right? To show them somebody that they would respect and admire uh, who doesn't share their beliefs, okay? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one thing that has happened here in the, in the U.S. Uh, around uh, vaccine, uh, you know, hesitancy for the, for the COVID vaccine is that you know, there was a lot of distrust in the uh, African-American community in the United States over vaccines, given the you know, history uh, uh, of the Tuskegee experiment and you know, other moments in uh, you know, American history where uh, people were exploited. Uh, you know, so, so doubts are not always poorly founded. Sometimes doubts are rooted in, you know, in, in history and you know, the, the idea that, you know, people are targeted. Um, so one, I noticed that some of the very first vaccines that were given to the um, healthcare workers uh, were people of color because they were trying, I think, to demonstrate this is okay. This is not, you know, this is not uh, something that is a plot. This is not some, you know, people who are out uh, to kill you. And I, I think that that's uh, important as well, right? So you can, you talked earlier about ambassadors and I think that exemplars are also important, right? If you can find people who are looked up to in the community or just from the same community, uh, that can really help people. Uh, that, I mean, that, look, that works on the other side too. That's how the disinformation gets as far as it does sometimes, you know, when they, um, recruit a celebrity 
who is an anti-vaxxer, you know, that, that's terrible because then all the people who admire that celebrity then think, well, maybe there's something to this. But, you know, the flip side is that, um, you know, if you, can, can, if you can recruit people who are, uh, believe in vaccines, believe in science, believe in the global earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it can give some calm and some comfort to other people to you know, not be isolated, to you know, to not um, you know, be in that information silo where they're only hearing uh, facts, quote unquote, from the group of people who are spreading disinformation. You you know, you want to expose them to information from you know other sources. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in a case like this, where you know maybe being vaccine hesitant is related to to being part of your church, sort of highlighting another, you know, very practicing Christian who has come forward and taken a vaccine or is advocating for vaccines and using that person as an exemplar is, is something that, that we could explore. Um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you that you brought up, Lee, this question of the, the pre, I think you called it pre-bunking. That's something that, um, we saw an article, you know, from a few years ago going around, um, I think calling it like almost an inoculation theory. And I wonder if that, is that the same thing, this idea of inoculating against misinformation um, sort of by exposing, by giving the message beforehand. And then, and I think the article that we had seen had said almost the same way we do with vaccines, you know, giving in some cases with some vaccines, a little dose of what it is that you're trying to counter and saying, you might hear this. And if you do hear this, so is it that sort of, is that a, is that the same kind of, um, of method that you're advising? Yes, there, there are some terrific research studies on this by uh, Sander van der Linden. Uh, he had a paper out in the same issue of Nature Human Behavior as the Betts and Smid uh, study, and in fact, commented on their study. So, you know, that's, and he talks about inoculation theory, that that's a, that's a very uh, important uh, piece of research. I've actually got a, a friend here in the US, uh, Andrew Norman, who's got a book coming out called Mental Immunity in which he takes some of this research and talks about how you can put it into practice. You know, how you can, everybody talks about critical thinking, but you know, what does that mean? How can you actually, you know, use these techniques in order to inoculate yourself um, against bad ideas? Uh, and, you know, he, so he talks about that in, uh, in his book uh, as well. So, and, and it's, it's a very powerful technique because if you think about it, just from a common sense point of view, if you warn somebody in advance that somebody's going to try to cheat them, then they'll be on their guard watching, you know, oh, is that person trying to cheat me now? And so they're paying attention. It's much harder to wait until somebody has been cheated and then convince them that they were. Um, so inoculation for disinformation, yeah, I, I think that's probably the, uh, the way to go. Uh, one of Vander Linden's um, uh, friendly critiques of the Betts and Smith study was that they really didn't say much about pre-bunking, that it was all debunking. And he wanted to, you know, say that, you know, pre-bunking would probably work too. And, you know, my friendly critique of the study, though it, it wasn't published, uh, it, but it's coming up in my book, is that this was all done online. It was not done face to face. And that it was all with the audience for Science Denial, not with the hardcore deniers. And I wanted to try the hardcore deniers face to face and see if it could work. Okay, and so tell me then the difference between the inoculation and the pre-bunking. I mean, wouldn't they be the same? Where you're they're the same. A, they're the they're, same. Okay. They're, the, they're the same. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if I was misleading on that. The idea of pre pre-bunking is a, a, a <laughs> it's a funny word, but it, uh, it yes, inoculation theory, right? That if you tell somebody in advance, here's what a conspiracy theory is. These are the elements of it. Here's an example of it. Now listen very carefully to this person, you know, when they're telling you this, you know, thing that they're going to tell you, because it's going to be a conspiracy theory. The person is, I think, much more likely to say, oh, yeah, I kind of understand now. That was just like the thing that you told me. Okay. Uh, and then the debunking is after the fact, then. that's Debunking when it's- is after the fact. Debunking is when they've already heard the misinformation, and then you have to go through and unpack it and explain why the thing that they just heard you know, was a conspiracy theory, say. 
Um, okay. But, but by the way, I mean, both can be effective. And, and to my knowledge, there's been no study of which is more effective. I mean, this is all kind of cutting edge stuff that the researchers are, are, are doing. Um, but uh, I'd be very interested myself to know whether pre-bunking is more effective than debunking. But that's an empirical question that I'm, I'm not sure it's been answered. Maybe it has and I just missed it. But I, I don't know if there's an answer to that yet. Okay, okay. And in terms of the, the tropes, um, and would you, is there one of them that you think is sort of um, better to tackle? You know, so just to review the tropes, you said cherry picking. So these are the main tropes of science denialism, cherry picking evidence, belief in conspiracy theories, reliance on flawed experts, insistence that science must be perfect and illogical reasoning. Is there, you know, would you, would you advise us if we try and train people to be able to, to um, kind of try and attack these main tropes to really be trained on all of these? Or is there one from your experience that is easier to break down than others? I, I think you need them all because they're related. Uh, you know, you'll, you'll find the, the people that I've spoken with who are science deniers, they don't know these five tropes, but they use them and they use them seamlessly from one to the other, right? So, you know, you listen to them talk and you go, oh, now they're cherry picking. Oh, now they're relying on a fake expert. Oh, you know, now it's a conspiracy theory. But it's it's not, it, it, you, you really, it, it's all five parts of the same thing. And it, it's not that hard to do. There, there's some excellent work on this by uh, John Cook and Stephen Lewandowski. Um, if people want to uh, read about this, there's some, uh, research studies, uh, but also some things in the popular press that they've uh, put together on this. So they kind of uh, picked up from uh, the Hoofnagel brothers invented it and then Cook and Lewandowski have written about it. There's another really brilliant book by uh, Kwasim Kassam, C-A-S-S-A-M, um, who's an, a British scholar uh, who's got a book called Conspiracy Theories. And it, it's just, it's a marvelous uh, uh, general audience short book which talks about what's wrong with conspiracy theory reasoning and why it's so dangerous. So, I mean, somebody could really put together a pretty good short self-education on this and then go out and try it. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's, look, it's hard to convince people, but I don't think it's that hard to put the tool set together that might work to convince people, right? You just, you build your tool set and then you've got to go out and try it and, and see what works. And, and there, there's another related point here that I, that I wanna make, which is that some of, some of what I'm talking about now is anecdotal, okay? It's things that uh, we've tried and you know, to see if they work and there's not necessarily experimental evidence to show that they do. There could be, uh, and, and maybe that's something that, that we need to work on. But it's the, what's new is trying these techniques for science denial. But these techniques, as I said at the outset, already exist and have been effective in other venues. Uh, the fellow that I talked with, who was the uh, former uh, Mooney, um, he was deprogrammed out of the Moonies and was you know, talking about how uh, you know, these techniques were used to, uh, you know, to deprogram people out of cults. Well, you know, and just would us ask ourselves, how many of our beliefs are based on identity? A lot of them, you know, mm -hmm. quite a number of them in many different areas. And so, you know, I'm not sharing something that people probably already don't already know, which is that the most persuasive people in your life are the people who love you and know you best. And so the, the real explanation for science denial is isolation. It's misinformation and isolation. It's people getting information from a very narrow silo, only talking to people who already agree with them, you know, not being exposed to other points of view. I, I advocate people to talk to people who disagree with them. I, I think that's the only way that beliefs change. Mm, that is a great sort of um, inspiring 
message, I think, on which to, to start wrapping up. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee McIntyre. You've been so gracious with your time. You know, we cold contacted you after we heard from our, from our fellow um, South African scientist how great your book was. So she'll be very excited when I go back to her and tell her that I was able to have a conversation with you. We really appreciate mm. you taking the time to chat with people working on the other side of the world. And we hope that you will keep in touch so we can let you know how things are going. I, I had so much fun talking to you and you, you, had, you had a head start in recruiting me for this because I actually visited South Africa in 2015 and uh, gave a paper at the University of Cape Town and just fell in love with uh, South Africa. So uh, it was uh, my pleasure to do this. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much, Dr. McIntyre. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you, provoked new thoughts, and provided you with evidence-based information as we all work to ensure that the global response to COVID-19 is accountable, equitable, and community-owned. This episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast was edited by Luis Gonzalez Compalich, who also provided production assistance along with Vivian Naidu. Our executive producer is Tian Johnson. I am Maaza Siyum. You can follow us on Twitter at Afri underscore Alliance or email us at info at africanalliance.org.za to give us feedback on this episode or to suggest topics for future episodes. Also, please don't forget to sign up at africanalliance.org.za to never miss key news.